Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you for your prayers uh, for me uh, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, I'm doing good, not ready to ride, ride a marathon, but I'm doing good. And so grateful for that today. You know, it's never good. Kids are going. Yes, dismiss those kids. There they go. Get out of here. Come on. Man. You know, it's never good. There's sometimes, some things in life, you know, when you see something, you go, oh man, that's not good, right? Well, you know it's never good when a snake shows up. You know, you know it's never good when a snake shows up. I'd like you to go to Genesis chapter 3 with me this morning as we continue this, this series of messages on God's flourishing in our life of, of living the life of the kingdom in this world. Living for God in a world like this. In a world God wants, really. Last week, uh, Brother Lloyd Curtis was with us. I love that brother. He's awesome. And so shout out to you, Lloyd. Thanks again um, for sharing with us. And um, our director, the executive director of our rescue mission, what a godly man and what a heart he has for our community and he shared his update, and that's great. We're going to be hearing more from them and partnering more with them. But he said last week these words, when you are fully broken, you're most prepared to flourish. Only the broken can find true flourishing. What a statement that is. But even as we hear, Lloyd, as I was, I was watching him, hearing him, and I heard that, we really resonate with those words. And uh, I read something this week uh, that, um, that reminded me of that. In fact, it was last weekend when I read it. Um, it is from Herman Melville's classic work, Moby Dick. And you've probably heard these words in the 17th chapter of Moby Dick. We hear these words. Heaven have mercy on us all, Christians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. <laughs> it sums it up, right? That kind of sums it up. And whether you are religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, there is something we all know that's profoundly askew with the world as it is. You don't have to be religious to look at the world and go, there's just not, there, something's not right. So we're going to start today and talk about when the world broke. When the world was broken. In reading Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're captivated by the richness and the beauty of God's intention. And as Bob Whiffen said, it's easy to go into our creation and look at, especially this time of year, look at the beauty around us. I mean, it is, you know, they were predicting because of the drought we were going to have poor colors. I'm glad they were wrong, right? It is, it is stunning. It makes me think about those first two chapters and the, and the beauty of God's creation and these two most fundamental chapters in all of Scripture, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and let's just also add the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, really point to the desire of God for humankind to flourish, to experience well-being, 
and beauty in God. If only we did not have to land at chapter 3. Chapter 3 contains the account of what we call the fall. The fall of mankind. And as we look there this morning, I want you to just keep two things in mind. The first is this. When you read chapter 3, some people want to assign it a commentary on gender dynamics and who's to blame. But that's not what this is about. In fact, the word Adam actually has more of a connotation of human, coming from the ground, human. And the word Eve actually has the connotation of life. And so what we're really talking about is we're talking about in chapter 3 some truths for all of us. It represents all of us living in human life. So let's set that aside. The second thing is this. Whatever you want to believe about Genesis 3, Reinhold Niebuhr, I think, got it pretty right when he said, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable in society. Look around our world. It is verifiable. If you don't believe in a sinful nature, all I want you to do is if you have a child or a grandchild and they're playing with their toy and they're really into it and you try to take that from them or they're hungry and they're letting you know, like when that infant is hungry and letting you know, you notice they don't go, may I please have something to eat? But as I said, things are never good when a snake shows up and we're going to learn about when the world broke. And I want to wonder, is it possible then for us to actually really flourish? Or is that all just a religious facade? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 reads this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said, we'll get to what he said. Now, let's just get this out of the way right away. You might be quick to correct me and say, well, Jeff, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about being a snake. It's a serpent. Snakes are serpents. So I'm going to stick with the snake. Okay? But you may be tempted to roll your eyes and say, oh, not the old snake in the grass idea again. So hear me clearly. Whether or not you believe in a literal snake slithering at Eve's feet or a metaphorical serpent representing evil, Arguing over that is exactly what the real devil enjoys. Because it feeds into his strategy of distraction. A spiritual sleight of hand. An exercise in missing the point. And I think that's part of why in John chapter 8, what some have seen as Jesus' commentary on Genesis 3, Jesus gives the main point of Genesis 3. Here it is. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what's the deal about the snake? The serpent. Well, you see, the whole point is that the serpent points to deception. That the snake comes with deception. That the snake comes to deceive and destroy, but does not come with lethal weaponry, but with lethal ideas to get anything else. Ponder this. The battleground of the heart is most often associated to ideas. Just think about that. Dwell on that. Dwell on that and then go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's for That's homework. That's later. Not lethal weaponry, so to speak, but lethal ideas. Let's just look at two of them. Deception number one is this. You can't trust God. And you can't trust God to be good. Watch as this idea is deceptively planted by the serpent. He said... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Hear that with all the bitter sarcasm you can imagine. Look closely. It's a question that is planted. It's a doubt that is sown. And hear it. Hear it. It is disinformation that's given. Because God never said not to eat of any tree. Quite to the contrary. He said you can have whatever you want except for one. And here's the deception. God cannot be trusted to desire your best interests. So God is recast in the shadows of the garden as a divine control freak. Because you can't trust them. But here's the next deformed idea. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. Again, that old snake, man, nothing's good. Nothing happens that is good when snakes show up, I'm telling you. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Deception number two, the deceptive idea, lethal idea. I don't need God. You don't need God. <laughs> you don't need God. And Adam and Eve bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. That sounds pretty good. Their eyes were opened. The deceptive idea. You can't trust God, so you must seize your moment yourself. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, a book I'd recommend to everybody, he writes, 
Here the devil's lies are most salient. You can't trust God, but you can trust yourself, your own wisdom and desires. Look at this bright, shiny thing. Think about any bright, shiny thing that you're attracted to, I'm attracted to. Look at this bright, shiny thing, this tree that God said was off limits. Eat it, take it, seize it, experience it. Follow your heart. Your inner intuition is the most accurate map to the happy life you crave. And that leads to that divine image-crushing idea, I am the master of my fate. I do not need God. It's our own self-autonomy against God's benevolent rule. Hear that again. Our own self-autonomy versus God's benevolent rule. It's the heart of all sin. And get this. Get what the serpent never said. The serpent never said, dismiss God. The serpent never said, let's move God out of the place. It's not about taking the place of God, but setting ourselves up as equal to or superior to God. And that's the heart of the great deceiver. It is commonly considered that in Isaiah 14, we have a metaphorical picture of what happened with the one we call Satan, the devil. And how he was a created angel, meant for good. And then how he fell. And this is, his, is the source of his falling, according to Isaiah 14. It says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High God. Do you see how the character of the evil one is actually built into the deception of God's created one, his prized creation. And then what happens? Everything turns inward. Inward feels, now, now hear this, because it's so true in our world, inward feels like the road to flourishing. Inward feels like the road to flourishing, but it's actually a dead end. I read something very enlightening this week, earlier in the week. It is when we buy into these distorted traps and this exaltation of the self, and when I use the term self, please don't think I'm referring to that beautiful image-bearing person of a human that you are that God has made you to be, but rather that self that's turned inward on itself. But when we do that, there is this trap door, this inside access that the devil has in every person on that, with that inwardly turned self. John Eldridge said that, and he went on to say this, the devil doesn't really care. The devil doesn't particularly care what your personal sins are. He doesn't really care how he gets you to stumble. What he, what he delights in is the internal access he has, the precious self. For while we entertain the self, pamper it, let it have its own way, we crowd out the life of God. So what happens? 
Their eyes were opened. That sounds like really great. But what we see is that the flourishing God has for humanity is now corrupted. It's redefined. And what were they open to? What were their eyes open to? The withering, not the flourishing, the withering of shame and isolation and fear and hardship and death. Philosopher J.P. Moreland said, far from delivering pleasure and happiness, this strategy of living for the self has brought about discontent and depression. See, they chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the tree they ate from. The one tree God said, listen, I don't want you to eat from that. And they bought the big lie, and the big lie is this, I am the judge of what is good and evil based on my self-oriented desires. I'm the one who determines that. And you see, once we believe that lie, then there's a whole sort of another group of lies that come ushering in that you don't think are related to that, but they are. Lies like this. Lies that say, you know what, because you don't measure up, you're worthless. Or you're not good enough. Or you're a lost cause. Because you know what? You're only as good as you, what you can produce. And you're only as accepted by what you possess. And you can only have the fullness of life by what you can control and seize. That's the cultural water we swim in. You now become the one who determines what is right and wrong, self-determined, self-realized, and self-fulfilling, all focused on the appeasement of the self rather than God. And here's the deal. That is too heavy a burden for human beings to carry, to determine what is right and wrong based off of our own selfish desires. From the shadow of the garden, seeking to own life rather than live life, seeking to be God rather than love and trust God, we have borne so much weight that we're not intended to bear. But that's the water we swim in. That's the cultural water we swim in. And it's declared that it's great. But if it's so great, why then, as Sandra Richter said, our gene pool is flooded with death and disease. Our relationships are consumed by self. Our resources are limited. Our planet is poisoned. Death is everywhere. Anxiety abounds. And sin reproduces itself at every level. Even though culturally we believe we are more superior, smarter, and developed than anyone who buys into the snake story, the truth is this. Flourishing is lost when we displace praise, love, and service to God with a life focused on autonomy from God. So...
It's never good when a snake shows up. And we just, we had to stumble into chapter 3. But it forces a question. Does this mean flourishing is lost? Is this all we got, friends? I think it's an honest question. Is this all we got? Not quite. And we actually find the answer in Genesis 3. Catch the misrepresentation that Eve gives of what God said and had given. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, that's nothing, by the way, never talk back to serpents. <laughs> Not a good idea. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, so if we hit like instant replay on what God did, is that what God said? Go back to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 9. What did God do? It says this, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. All kinds of them. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Read Eve's words and you think there's just one tree. There were two trees in the middle of the garden, too. You see, God was not holding out on them. God was trying to protect them from a burden and a weight that they were never intended to bear. There was a choice between two trees, life with God or self-rule. And I find incredible hope in this. Because this is what that means. This is what it means. We still can choose the tree of life. In, Genesis, in John chapter 17, verse 3, these words, Jesus said this. Now this is eternal life. If you want to tell your friends that this is the definition of eternal life, it's the only place in the New Testament where a statement is made that defines eternal life. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That life, the very life that God desires for us, is still available. The flourishing God desires for us is still accessible in knowing God in Christ. Now, we're all too familiar with the interruption of the flourishing God desires and the impact of, let's just call it the garden disaster. But these hopeful words remind me that God's gracious provision was always present in the first Garden of Eden. Always present. And is always present for you and me in the garden of our hearts and lives. Always. Peter writes these words. 
By His divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of the One who called us by His own honor and glory. Everything we need. That sounds like the Garden of Eden. There's all kinds of abundance for you to be cared for. And there wasn't one tree in the middle of the garden. There was two. You choose. There's more than enough of life. Love it. But that's not all. Remember later as the whole project is like collapsing around that first couple? They are now fear-stricken. They are shame-shocked. They're going and hiding themselves. They, Who told you you're naked, God says to them, right? They're now isolating from God. They're hiding from Him. In verse 9, But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Let me ask you, when you hear those words, what do you hear? What kind of God do you hear? But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? What do you hear? What kind of God do you hear? You see, I don't think God was asking that question because he didn't know where Adam was. <laughs> I don't think God like, was breaking out his GPS because Adam's phone had a little tracking thing on it and he'd go, oh, there's where he is. I don't think so. I think God was asking so that Adam could realize one thing, that God cared about him. I think God was asking Adam, where are you? Because God cared. Because God loved him. Flourishing? Yes. Again, hear these words from Jesus. Luke chapter 19 in the message paraphrase say, For the Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. I don't think God was like trying to hunt Adam out to put him over his knee and spank him. I do believe that God cared. Because notice this, the moment things went sour, the moment things went sour, God's first response is to form a search party of one, himself. And ever since then, God has sought to restore us to right relationship with him. So be of good courage, friends. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing me. He's coming after us. God's not just sitting back going, oh, well, they, you know, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere. They're a lost cause. He's coming after you. He's coming after me. Where is it that you need God to come after you today? And what is he coming after you with? Because he's coming after you with something very specific. And the Bible tells us that. Those beautiful words from Psalm 23, verse 6. They tell us this. The, your, yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. It literally means will pursue me all the days of my life. God is coming after you. He's coming after me with goodness. He's coming after me with faithful love. What is he coming after me? He's coming after me with flourishing. Flourishing. He's not giving up. He hasn't given up 
on his flourishing project that he began when he breathed life into you and me and built a, 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 a conditions for us to be able to flourish. And even after we chose something lesser, he hasn't given up. Why is that? Why hasn't he given up? So that you and I, as it says in Colossians 3.10, catch this. So that you and I can put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Right? So that he can restore his image in us to Christ-likeness. If you want to know what holiness is, it's Christ-likeness. It's Christ-like love. And here's the good news is, you can't do that for yourself, and I can't do it for myself. But he is pursuing us. He's coming after us to restore us into the image that's been implanted in us by our Creator. He's coming to help you and me be fully human. How awesome is that? So wow, that's a lot to come away with from a snake story, right? And there was a whole lot. I cut out a whole bunch more, but I think that's enough for this morning. It's enough to know this. The witness of Scripture and of life teaches us that life is intended to be lived under the benevolent lordship of God. That that's the heart of flourishing. And the gospel is this. Jesus Christ, no matter how far off the rails we have gone, no matter how far off the rails we have gone, Jesus is prepared to restore us to himself. To restore flourishing in our lives. Could you see flourishing is still God's plan for you and me. And even the darkest day in the garden could not stop him from seeking that for them and us. And my friends, even the darkest day in your life or the darkest corner of your soul can stop him either. Our worship team is going to come. And they're going to sing a Matthew West song. It's new to me. It's not new to probably many of you. The song is the God who stays. When Jamie sent me the song and the lyrics to this song, I just... And we even were not actually planning the same service initially. I, we just kind of, but it just wove, this whole service wove together towards where we are. And this song captures the heart of God in the darkest hour of the garden. And it captures the posture and the heart of God toward us. 
There are two trees in the middle of the garden. And we're still, still choosing one of them. But as we determine which one we're going to choose, God's already made his choice. And he's coming for us. He's pursuing us. He's not giving up on us. He has plans for flourishing for us. And he stays with us because he is for us. Thanks be to God.